0: Welcome to the Trinity Radio podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com/slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor: take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we're going to jump right into the action as we take a look at a discussion between Sean McDowell and Colby Martin on progressive Christianity and how it differs from Evangelical Christianity. It's an enlightening discussion. It was not meant to be a debate. So the degree to which Sean pushes back is limited. Often they said that they would like to go off on other rabbit trails, but because of the agreed upon format, they didn't do that. So we're going to go on those rabbit trails and it's going to be a lot of fun. I think they touch on a number of topics that are going to allow us to go further and hopefully learn some things. But I want to say also from the beginning that While Colby Martin is a self-identified progressive Christian, and we have major differences on issues related to the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, Scripture, and other things, it's important to note here that when we're talking about progressive Christians, we're talking about anybody, atheists, agnostics, on this channel, we are not... Uh, focused on the individual, we're focused on the views. Uh, We don't attack individuals. Individuals are made in the image of God, but views are not persons, and we can criticize views because some of the greatest atrocities that have happened in the history of the world happened because uh, people were afraid to criticize uh, ideas, And so we're going to talk about ideas. And in fact, to that end, I want to say about Colby that he is a really likable guy. You'll see that as we begin to look at the clips that I have here for us. Uh, I like his heart, even though we disagree on his conclusions in ways that are very, very important. And obviously we're going to talk about that. I like the fact that what he's trying to emphasize is the love of God and that we need to love other people. I think that's really, really important. I love his friendly and approachable disposition. That's clear throughout this whole thing. And except in one case, it doesn't strike me that he tries to dodge Sean's questions. Now, for some people who have already seen the discussion, you might say, well, hold on, I I thought that he was. I don't think so. And we'll get to why as we take a look at it, but we're going to move through this. And I just want it to be clear that we can love and even like people, right? A whole lot. Um, that you love someone doesn't necessarily mean you like them, but we can love and like people and still criticize their ideas. And these are ideas that I think are frankly dangerous and that need to be criticized from an orthodox Christian evangelical and, and evangelical Christian perspective. So we're going to do that now. Now I think what we see here in this discussion is, and the, the, some of the this is because Sean brought questions up that prompted these things. Some of these are things that Colby uh, kind of brought up as the conversation evolved. But I think we see four categories that are discussed uh, at first, which have to do with uh, they're kind of introductory categories, I call them. They have to do with what, uh, what Colby thinks about things and what progressive Christianity is, how to define that properly. Then there are four theological categories that are going to be discussed, and those are the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of the resurrection, and the nature of Scripture. So four categories that are introductory and four categories that are theological. This gives us a sort of a personal discussion, an informational discussion, and then also lets us discuss some systematic theology and things that are important to understand about uh, Christianity. And so we'll come back to those elements at the end of the video so that we can you know, remind ourselves of what was said in each of those categories. With that, let's jump into this and let's begin looking at the first of those things, which has to do with what really drives this move from evangelicalism to progressive Christianity. Is it uh, emotion or is it theological in nature? Let's listen to Sean as he asks that question.
1: So how do you separate the hurt and the pain and the treatment that's there from saying, "Okay, was this Christians treating me badly or does that mean it's false? What's that process for you?
2: I don't know that the separation is super clear or or clean and cut, Sean, because. A lot of the hurt is a direct result of the theology, is a direct Mm -hmm. result of the beliefs, I understand that it takes the manifestation of the humans doing the hurting but it stems from harmful beliefs. So for instance, when a woman is told that they are not allowed to teach a man, that they're not allowed, that they are 49% of a marriage and a man is 51%, when they are given these, like those are just inherently harmful ideas. Um, so I, for me, it's not, as it's all, it's all connected, it's all related. And I would not, and I do not in my own practice, I do not begrudge people I'm not saying you do, by the way, I'm just saying I don't begrudge people who do ultimately say I need to leave this thing because of the hurt, independent of, as you call my, or as you might have referenced, independent of what may or may not be true. I don't begrudge someone who's like, you know what, the 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 pain is so intense and the harm is so severe that I want nothing to do with it. Hmm. And I don't know how a, a compa- I don't know what other response other than just looking them in the eye and being like, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I probably would too. If, if that was me, if that was my story, I probably would too. And to, to ask that person to like return back to the source of pain, to have some sort of intellectual theological query to make sure that they really want to leave, uh, for me is like, although not totally similar, obviously it's a metaphor, is like a spouse who is being abused by their other spouse That person doesn't need to remain in that to figure out, well, are we really going to be compatible if we can get things figured out? It's like, no, there's there's legit harm, trauma, pain happening here. Um, It's time to leave.
0: Okay, as you can see. What's likable, what's lovable about this guy is he's got that friendly disposition, and he and, and I appreciate that about him. And he is emphasizing, hey, we want to help people that, that are experiencing harm, and we want to love on them. But let's talk about this a little bit. Um, obviously, he's saying that in evangelical Christianity, there are ideas that seem harmful. Now, he says that are inherently harmful complementarianism, uh, the idea that, that, I, that I, I don't necessarily agree with the way he characterizes it, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but the notion that uh, men and women have uh, equal value but uh, complementary but different roles in uh, the church and perhaps in the family, um, he sees things like this as inherently harmful. If they are inherently harmful, even if you were right about that, it's still true that the ideas seem harmful, right? Well, the question is, okay, we've got ideas that seem harmful. Are they really harmful? Because this came up when I was discussing uh, in a previous video and in my discussion at a, at a conference on, on the nature of hell. The idea of hell seems terrifying and traumatic and tyrannical to some people, uh, some atheists who have tried to recover from, uh, to use their language, evangelical Christianity and, and what was taught about hell. And it's it's terrifying and traumatic and uh, tyrannical the way that preachers talk about it. And so... I can grant you to a certain degree that, that some, some of what is discussed may be terrifying and it may be traumatic, but whether it's tyrannical or not depends on whether it is true or not. Uh, there's a good alliteration for you there. Uh, so, so, for example, let's, let's not talk about a woman being abused because I do sympathize with him about a woman being abused. We don't need to talk about the nuances of your marriage and whether you know you guys can sort this out and get along. If you're being abused... Uh, then you need, we don't need to wait. Just get, get out of that situation and reassess from a distance perhaps and and see what's going on. And if you're being, if you truly are being abused, then, then that's, then yeah, just get out of that situation, obviously. But at the same time, when we're talking about this, I don't think it's so much like a woman being abused. It may still be terrifying and traumatic, but think about it this way. Let's think about someone who has been smoking cigarettes for a long, long time, for a couple of decades, perhaps. And this man goes to his doctor, and his doctor sits him down and says, listen, I've got some terrifying and traumatic news for you. It seems that you're experiencing, I I see strong indication of lung cancer, and this may mean changes for the rest of your life. It may be changes about the length of your life, and we need to start treatment immediately. Now, that individual uh, could look at the doctor and say, that is terrifying, and obviously it is, and it's traumatic, and it obviously is, but is the doctor doing something tyrannical? No, if it's true, the doctor is actually trying to tell the man something helpful that is going to result in more life for him. And I think that this may be the case with uh, certain doctrines that are being taught in evangelical churches. Obviously, there are some things that are being taught that are uh, or pressed to a degree that might be tyrannical, uh, depending on what the doctrine is, but and harmful, to use his language. But the question is, what is being taught? It's not about whether it's terrifying or traumatic. It's about, is it true or not? And if it's true, then like the person who has lung cancer, running away from that and saying, say that the the cigarette smoker leaves that doctor and says, well, I'm just not going to go to that doctor or any doctor anymore. Uh, Maybe I'll go to some other kind of, you know, uh, non-credentialed, you know, (laughs) sort of holistic medicine or something. I'm not going back to those medical doctors because those people... What they're telling me seems so harmful to me. It's so traumatic. It's so hurtful that I don't really even need to think about whether it's true or not. I just need to get out of that situation. Well, obviously that's not a good move. So whether it's true is actually very important. And so what we need to do is if something seems harmful, it might be harmful. It it might not be harmful. It might be scary, but true. And so I would not begrudge someone who's experiencing that from scheduling a time away from church to talk to uh, uh, someone that they uh, s- someone that they think is an expert when it comes to systematic theology and some of these ideas, maybe talk to the pastor, maybe, maybe visit another church and talk to that pastor. I don't know, but to look into this into a greater depth without just saying, "Well, if if it's terrifying and traumatic to me, then it's completely out." Um, and the, and the reason this becomes so important, and we're going to see this more as we go on, is why in the st- in the case of the, the smoker and uh, the medical doctor, why is is that something that we say, "Well, yeah, obviously." Uh, But not in the church situation. Well, I think it's because we recognize that with medicine, what we're talking about is real and the stakes are really high. Well, I think when you treat spiritual matters as as though that the stakes aren't that high or um, maybe maybe it doesn't matter so much about what's true, let's just get out of this situation. It's treating spiritual matters and the things of God as though they're less real and uh, therefore less important and that is that could not be further from the truth we would say and i would think that colby martin um would say even from his perspective no spiritual matters are of the utmost importance and so if that's true then whether it's true a particular position we need to find that out. And so I think that that's very, very important. When we talk about emotion and theology, obviously the emotional component is there. We don't want to seem callous to that. We need to love people and be very cautious in how we handle that. But at the same time, what matters is what's true. And so uh, I think that uh, hopefully that will that will shed some light. Let's move on to the next thing where we can find some grounds to agree with Colby here.
2: It's not so much the questions that weren't welcome even if that might've been true in some individual instances, it's more like the questioning wasn't welcome, which is to say huh. people could like, you know, I think back to my youth pastor, he was totally fine with people asking him questions, as long as when it's all said and done, you land on the right answer. And for him, he had a very clear, so it wasn't just that questions are bad. It was, you can ask the questions, just know that here's the answer and want, you can't be, you can't remain in a state of questioning, right? You can't remain in a state of, what if I just don't know? What if I just stay in this place of not knowing? Is that okay? Well, the answer is yes, it's okay. But what I was told was, no, it's not okay. And then two, what if I land in a different place? So that's why maybe I I regret the way I worded that just because it's not so much that questions weren't welcome. It's that questioning as posture and attitude was not welcome. Um, And then landing in a different place than sort of the, um, the the correct positions as stated by whatever church it was um, was not permitted.
0: Okay, so Sean in the video for this actually says, "Yeah, there there is some agreement here when it comes to questioning. We we and and we want people to feel free to question." I was just actually um, in Sarasota, Florida, contributing to a resource that that church is putting together. And one of the things that I told them I discovered during my DMin doctoral project is that when and, and this this also information that comes from the Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion that if people who are experiencing doubts uh, are have a, a support group of other Christians around them. Um, At least one of whom I think has an answer, you know, is familiar with, you know, how to dig out some answers to these things, then that support group is very important. And and the percentage of people that walk away from the church after having a good support group that loves them and tries to provide answers is, is a lot less than if they don't have that support group. And so I think the churches should have a clear path. Uh, that is that is made clear in their literature on their video screens in some way so that people that are experiencing doubt in the church have a path to go find out where, where can we ask these questions? Where can we talk about these things? Because I am experiencing doubt and I'm, I'm kind of experiencing that part of my journey. I think that's very important now. Uh, I don't think we can totally agree here though so in what sense do we agree okay so he says that his youth pastor and, and presumably pastors in general and people like that are okay with you asking questions just so long as all said and done you recognize the answer right that they give you is the is the correct one. Well, when it comes to secondary doctrinal issues, we consider secondary doctrinal issues things like the debates between Calvinism and non-Calvinist positions, various views on end times, uh, things like that. Secondary issues that don't have to do with what's central to the Christian Orthodox Christian faith, what's central to your salvation, what's central to the nature of Jesus. But those secondary issues like those that Christians can have in-house debates about You know, I don't—questions are fine, and I think questioning is fine, and landing on a position other than what the church— uh, that the church presents as their official view on that thing is also fine. Um, I actually, I know that churches are not all okay with that. And to that extent, I agree with him as I think Sean agrees with him. I think that's perfectly, that, that's perfect. It should be perfectly acceptable to have those questions and to even to maintain a, a posture of questioning because you you, you, you don't really know and, and you're digging that out and, and you're going to continue that for years to come. I think that that is fine. And if you land on a different position than the leadership of your church on a secondary doctrinal issue, I think that what should happen in those situations is that hopefully we have a church that is okay with that and other people in the church that are mature enough and you as an individual are mature enough that we can still have fellowship despite these differences on secondary doctrinal issues. Nevertheless, I think there is some value in denominationalism in the sense that if, if you— it, so I'm a non-Calvinist. If I go to a Calvinist Reformed church— um, that should be fine with them and fine with me. But it, but the moment that it comes to the place where I'm actually causing division because I can't help but make this my personal, uh, you know, issue that I've, I've got to die on um, the hill I'm going to die on. Well, it would actually be better for me to probably find a church that has. Uh, a perspective on that secondary doctrinal issue that's closer to mine so that I don't cause division in that church. But in general, I think that that individuals in the church and the church itself should be okay with differences of opinion on these secondary doctrinal issues and certainly diff- questioning these secondary issues now, but it, but when it comes to these fundamentals of the faith, he says it himself in one point in the original video, that these handful of things that just are beyond, you know, that you've got to accept the answer we're giving you on these things. Um, Clearly, the church can't force you to believe what what they believe on these things. But if we're talking about things that are Orthodox Christianity, things that are necessary for your salvation, things that have to do with the very central features of our faith, that if you don't believe these things, then then really, in a meaningful sense, a historic Christian sense, you're not talking about Christianity anymore. Well, there I think it actually— it does make sense for the Christian leadership there, the church leadership to say, listen, we are we believe this to be true, and we, we're going to lovingly discuss this with you, and we're not upset with you. We love uh, to talk about these things, but this is so important. We're not willing to budge on this, and we think you should hold this position because not to do that is dangerous. This comes back again to the question of the seriousness of this. If a doctor told you that about a condition, you would consider that to be good advice. And you would say, I'm glad he gave me an urgency about this, because this is a, a very serious and important issue. I'm not going to argue too much about it. I, I may have questions. I may challenge his position. I may do other research. But uh, I appreciate that he's being straightforward, that he's not going to budge on this. And this is important enough that he thinks I should hold his view. When we come to spirituality, when we come to Christianity, if why do we think about that differently? Well, it could be because the individual doesn't take those things to be as serious as life and death as the medical issues. We actually think, as evangelical Christians, these things are far more important than than medical states of affairs. And so for that reason, there are these fundamental things that, yeah, we're not going to be okay with. Um, I mean, okay with, obviously you can believe whatever you want, but we're going to try to convince you of this position. And if, if in part of your... Continuingly questioning that is causing a stumbling block for other people in the church. If you're, if you're talking about this with them in a way that is meant to uh, produce doubt in them about this, um, and we may have some young young Christians there, then then we're obviously going to want to address that in some way. We're going to want to uh, be a part of that conversation. So uh, I agree that questions and questioning should be okay, and landing on other positions is not something that should disturb us too awfully much if we're talking about secondary doctrinal issues. But when it comes to these very important fundamentals of the faith, um, then, then, yeah, don't expect uh, church leaders to, like, uh, be happy to discover that you're holding a different view on the bodily resurrection of Jesus or the divinity of Christ, and expect them to challenge this and 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 be very concerned that you're holding those views. And in that sense, not be okay with it, because they think it's very, very dangerous, just as you might not be okay with someone you really care about going on, uh, you know, and, I, and by the way, he said he likes analogies, I'm making analogy, so don't, don't read too much in, into it, but... But uh, I'm not comparing progressive Christianity to smoking cigarettes, okay? Um, that, that, that's, uh, that's not what I'm doing here. But uh, just as you with someone who's smoking and says, I just don't if they just said, I don't believe, I don't believe that this is harmful, and people telling me that it's harmful is, is causing me a lot of trauma, we're still going to, and you, if you love that person, are still going to argue for that position. You're not going to, in that sense, be Okay with their continuing in that activity and that belief because you care about them. And I think when you look at it that way, it, it makes so much more sense of these things. So those are some things that I, I wanted to uh, make clear as we discuss this particular issue of questions and questioning. Let's move on to uh, the question of if you are evangelical. He asks, Sean asks Colby, if you were still evangelical, how would you function so that those things you're worried about that are harmful would not be there? And so the questioning could continue. Let's see what he has to say in response.
1: But imagine you're still an evangelical and you believed probably what I believe, that Christianity is true, but you want to invite questions. What would you do differently as an evangelical pastor to teach young people what you think is true? but not in a way that's dogmatic, requires certainty and undermines questioning that young people might have.
2: (laughs) Uh, Man, that's like, that's like asking somebody, imagine you were to play golf, but you couldn't use clubs. How, how would you hit it off the tee? Um, Because because I think my number one, and that's probably a terrible metaphor, but I, I use about 27 metaphors and hope that one of them is, is worthwhile. Cool. Um, I, I think I get I get the heart of the question. It's a fascinating question, but I think where I get tripped up, Sean, is it is, and this, forgive me if this is overly reductive, but at the heart of evangelical Christianity is the belief, the assumption. Mm-hmm. that what God cares about most is what we believe. A way to say that differently is evangelical Christianity is built upon the, that you have to have the right answer to at least one or two or three questions, right? This is the whole premise, like, you want to get to heaven when you die, you have to be able to have this correct belief. The whole thing is sort of built on this idea that what God, what what the creator of everything cares about most is what humans Think that they have the right data in between their ears, and I find that um, find that r- wrong. I don't know how else to say it.
0: Okay, so as with a number of these things, Sean provides great responses, and I want you to watch. I, I hope that you will promise me through the through the uh, computer screen that you will watch the video to get Sean's responses because in many places he says it in a much better way than I think I would. So I think that's very valuable. I want to play one thing that he says here that really gets to the heart of this and I want to build on it. So here's one thing that Sean says in response to this notion that It's not so much about, you know, uh, loving people and and all the things that Colby wants to emphasize, but it's just about believing the the certain propositional truth claims. We have to believe those. That's that's really what evangelical Christianity is most interested in, is, is saying that God wants you to have certain data between your ears. What does Sean say in response to that? I think this is beautiful. This, to my mind, was the best part of the video. Here's what he has to say.
1: I think what Scripture says is what God cares about most is that we love him and love other people. But we can only properly love people if it's informed by certain theology about the character of god the character of man the nature of salvation
0: I think that that's beautiful. If you if you don't have certain information, certain knowledge that is, uh, you know, cer- certain beliefs that that are important, like in propositional truth claims that you believe, then you're, you're, you may end up not doing the thing that would be most loving for someone. And so that's very, very uh, important to all of this. I think let's let's think about, um, for example, uh, the. Uh, boy, I have to be careful because I don't want this video to be demonetized or taken down or, or something like that. Um, seems like when you talk about these issues in the culture right now, it, 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 it triggers something in YouTube. But um, we're supposed to get a certain shot. Let's say that right now. Uh, and, and there are people on both sides of that. There are people that don't know what to do. I'm not taking a political position about that. Uh, but uh, we need to take a certain shot right now so that we don't get a certain thing that is global right now. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, if if uh, what we've been told is, hey, if you want to be a good citizen, if you want to be a good neighbor, if you want to be a good global neighbor and love your fellow man, well, then it would be important for you to take this particular shot because that is a part of what we're doing globally to try and overcome this thing. So even if you're not worried about yourself, you should take this shot for the sake of the global community. Um, okay. Now, on, on that point, uh, how, how do you, with respect to that, how do you properly, if that's true, how do you properly love your neighbor and be a good global citizen? Well, it, it requires you understanding that some propositional truth claims that this thing is going on worldwide, that this shot is going to be helpful uh, in that. And, and a, a little bit of information about how and why it's going to be helpful, right? You have to believe those things. If you don't believe those things, if you don't know and believe those things, then you may your desire may be to propagate health in some way but you're going to miss it in a very important way as it relates to what's going on in our world right now. So the propositional truth claims are not the most important thing about you loving your neighbor, but they're important or else you're going to wrongly love your neighbor in this respect if what if what's being said about all this is true, right? So the information, the propositional truth claims are important in order for you to function lovingly as you should. And that's the point that Sean is making in in a much grander way about believing the right things about God so that you can then love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is incredibly important to all of this. And so uh, if you don't have certainty, so he says, Colby actually says in the extended clip that you'll get in the original video that he really doesn't see how we get out of this. He gets that we're saying as evangelicals that I think he puts it like this. One A is believing the right propositional truth claims, and then one B is loving your neighbor and functioning as as you know and christianly we could say um as jesus would would want us to and uh and he says but i really don't know how you escape this that it's that it seems that it's really all about 1a or at least that 1a is necessary in a way that 1b isn't necessary in that same way but the, the truth about this, and Sean says, "What's well, simple?" And I think it's simple too. It's it's simply this: in order to function uh, lovingly in the, in the proper way, you have to have certain propositional truth claims in order to know how to do that right. And I think that that is very very important. Uh, so that's uh, I think uh, intuitive to a certain degree, but it's certainly I think the teaching of Scripture. All right, so let's move on to the fourth of these four introductory categories, and this, to my mind, is uh probably the most interesting one to me as we talk about the how do you define the progressive christianity so we're going to look at two clips on this the first one has to do with progressive christianity and then secondly how colby understands what it means to be a christian so let's look at the first clip
1: just tell us when you say you're a progressive christian and i know you don't speak for all progressive christians i don't speak for all evangelicals tell me what you mean by that term
2: in the book i named four what I call marker, I don't know if I call marker, I call markers now, four markers of progressive Christianity, which is to say, this doesn't define progressive Christianity, it just says that chances are, if you move along the spectrum from conservative toward progressive Christianity, chances are, the more you get this direction, the more likely the people will sort of have these four convictions. One of them is an open and affirming posture towards those who identify LGBTQ, Um, One of those is an egalitarian attitude and belief as it relates to men and women, that they're equal. None of that complementarian nonsense. Uh, uh, Three is that uh, there is an acceptance that the idea of white supremacy is a real thing and that um, that needs to be dismantled and that there needs to be work to uh, undo the damage of that. And then uh, four is there's what I call an agreeableness to science, which is to say, if science reveals a thing to be true, it fits within the larger umbrella of what is true, and we don't have to fight that anymore.
1: Take the first issue, women egalitarian.
0: Okay, so I want to say something about this. Uh, what, what I'm going to do here is I thought that Sean's answers to this were so fantastic, and he said it in such a great way, and he's at a, a conservative institution. I am too, but but he's at a conservative institution, Biola, and theologically conservative. And so I, I want to leave in his response. So this makes this a bit of a lengthy clip, but I want you to hear what Sean says here because I think he just nails it, and that becomes important. So let's, let's listen to what he says.
1: Obviously, evangelicals differ on complementarianism some are egalitarian even at Biola we have some who are egalitarian a colleague of mine is so that's one you could hold and be in the evangelical church second you gave the example of white supremacy now this is a whole nother topic but you're going to find evangelicals who even differ over how to make sense of critical race theory Kevin DeYoung had a great piece from those who are totally critical and dismissive of CRT some who see it more as a tool within evangelical christianity of course this ties to how much systemic injustice is there another conversation but you're going to find evangelicals with a range of views on white supremacy how entrenched it is and how we we fight it so that that doesn't seem to be when it's all said and done necessarily a dividing line um the third one let me see the third one you gave outside of lgbtq with science so there's definitely a strain within evangelical christianity that resists mainstream science so young earth creationism that's one strain that tends to have a warfare model with modern science yeah but there's a growing movement say organizations that embrace evolutionary creation i have a friend of mine who's an evangelical christian in terms of his use on scripture jesus who believes god used the evolutionary process believes there's historical adam will consider himself an evangelical So those three, it seems to me, you could hold at least – I'm not making a point of whether I hold those or not. I'm saying in the broader evangelical community, people will hold those three and there's space for it. It seems like it's the fourth one when you get to the LGBTQ relationship that that's the dividing line where you and I are going to differ over this distinctly. I'm going to say no, doesn't represent scripture. If you go to an affirming position, you have left – what I think scripture teaches and the evangelical church. So is that really the dividing line? If we had to narrow it down where now we've crossed
2: threshold in your mind, is that fair? I think that is an accurate assessment. Okay.
0: Yeah. So this is great because I thought, I think Sean did a good job. He's like, look, if these are the four things that you're going to find progressive Christians in general uh, holding to, uh, then Three of these exists among evangelicals, but this issue about LGBT stuff seems to be the dividing line, as Sean put it. And I think that's I think that's right. And so, uh, and he agrees. He agrees about that. Now, why is that? I think with more than just that one of these four things, perhaps with the with the others as well. um, I think that that they see this as well. Okay, let me put it this way: there is a charitable way of analyzing this and there is an uncharitable way i'm going to explain the uncharitable way and i want to point out that colby says uh, in the fuller video this is not why this this is this is not why we view scripture as we do this is not why we hold these views and i recognize that and i want to be charitable to him and say i get that i'm going to take you at your word about that and then we're going to look at the charitable way of reading this i mention both because you're going to encounter both so the uncharitable way of viewing this of course this this you know what informs these things for evangelicals is scripture right scripture is a big part of this discussion on each of these points so with uh progressive christianity some will say yeah what's happening is those all represent things that are happening in culture right now that it would be very nice if christians could uh just affirm in the way that uh that non-christians affirm and so what, what progressive Christians are doing, perhaps why they left evangelicalism, is because one or more of these things seems to them appealing and seems to them like what they should affirm. And so as a result of that, they have, uh, they have decided upon that, and then they have built a way of looking at the Bible around that to allow for that. That's the uncharitable way, and uh, to the extent that that may be true of some progressive Christians, I don't know. But he says— He hears that sort of thing all the time, and that's not what's going on. He says, actually, the way they arrive at their positions is because they take the Bible more seriously. All right, so what does that look like? Well, in the fuller video, and I'm sorry we don't have time to play all these clips, but what he says about that is that actually what they do, and I think I'm characterizing this correctly, is they look at Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Look at Jesus. You understand how Jesus thinks about things, the sorts of things that Jesus endorses. And then you go through the rest of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and you say, okay, uh, genocide in the Old Testament, we could imagine him saying similar things about what the Bible says, particularly in the Old Testament, about homosexuality, although obviously homosexuality is discussed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 and Romans chapter 1 and other places in the New Testament um, or in the New Testament. But also in the Old Testament, he would say, you look at those things and you say, okay, that doesn't strike me as something that Jesus affirms. That doesn't seem like Jesus, so this becomes problematic. Um, And in this way, they emphasize Jesus. And, and, And this is what I appreciate. I appreciate that Colby and other progressives want to emphasize Jesus. Praise God for that. The problem is when you emphasize Jesus to the exclusion, in our opinion, of the Scripture that Jesus endorses. Jesus affirms the Old Testament, and this comes up actually in the discussion later on when we're talking about theology, uh, some systematic theology sort of questions. But I want you to notice that when we're talking about what is said about God in the Old Testament and, uh, and, and how God is, is uh, portrayed, then what someone must be saying is either what someone who's a progressive must be saying, as far as I can tell, is that those places in the Old Testament where, or in the New Testament where it seems like God is endorsing or a biblical author is endorsing something that the progressive does not think Jesus would affirm, then uh, what that or they think is contradictory with what Jesus does affirm, then what that means is this: this isn't really God saying this, right? This this perhaps this is man. Uh, putting it on God's lips because they they thought that or whatever, or justifying it by putting it on God. You know, the, you, there there's literature on this. You, you, you could explore this by looking at a number of people and Peter ends and uh, Greg Boyd and others and to various degrees hold to various uh, things about this. So, uh, so uh, that's, that's interesting, but I want you to notice that the the new Testament puts, uh, you know, Jesus puts a lot of emphasis on the connection between he and the father. And he, he points to the scriptures and, and what they have to say, right? And, but in John 5, 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. John five thirty. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Uh, John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, that's the one that sent me. I'm with him. I'm doing what he says. I'm I'm doing uh, you know, I th- I mean, what he believes is what I believe, right? Um, in Luke 24, Jesus points to uh, the writings, uh, the, the, the three categories of Scripture in the Old Testament, uh, the law, the writings, and the prophets, which for for those of you who have studied this, knows that that is the totality of the Old Testament, and Jesus endorses that. Now, later on, uh, Colby does say, wait, hold on a second. Uh, yeah, but the way you're interpreting the Old Testament might not be the right way. And we'll come to that perhaps when we get to uh, the systematic theology on the Scripture. But I want it to be very clear that um, if if th- this this is what I'm seeing happen here with progressives and with what Colby is saying, and I don't I don't mean to be uncharitable, and I'm sure Colby would have something to say in response to this, but it sounds to me like we're emphasizing Jesus. That's a good thing, but we're emphasizing Jesus to the exclusion of the Scripture that Jesus endorses. And I think that that is. I I don't think that he would say that. I think he would say no. The Scripture that Jesus endorses, you're interpreting wrongly. But I I don't I don't think that. Can be made, and perhaps we'll have further comments on that in just a few moments when we get there. But I think that's all very, very important. Now, let's take a look at um, Chris how he understands the term Christian, because we've talked about a little bit of what it means to be a progressive Christian. It really does all come down to that dividing line of homosexuality, which is, as I've said many times on the show. Uh, I think that, that I understand. I understand the desire to, um, to be affirming in, in that uh, when it comes to homosexuality, because. We, we, we don't want to sound like bigots. We want. We, we don't want to say, we, I mean, and look, we, we want to seem loving. And that seems like that would be the loving thing to us from a human perspective sometimes. And our culture is certainly telling us that. And it sure is, sure is giving the church a black eye, you know, because of how we view that thing and because of how Scripture teaches these things. But look, it's not about what we like or not and Sean makes this point very well. It's about what we believe is the truth about the nature of reality. But how, did, how what when it comes to Christ, what it means to be a Christian, how does Colby understand that? Let's take a look.
1: Let, let me ask you a little bit more what you mean by, by Christian. On On page 10, you say, when I say Christian, I do so in the broadest sense. My bars for what might render a person Christian are fairly low. For me, the term represents one someone who's decided that in jesus through his life and teachings there exists a trustworthy path for living full to the fullest and trying to live in that way so in jesus there's a path you should follow second makes an effort to identify with at least some aspects of the religious tradition and heritage that emerged in his name so he's got jesus is the person to follow this tradition he's left and identify with it in some fashion as i'm reading this i'm thinking okay a muslim would qualify because they would say jesus born virgin did miracles uh was sinless the greatest prophet so and they would also say they identify with some of the christian tradition although muhammad was a later prophet that fulfilled it mormons would identify with this are you okay saying if they call themselves christians they're christians or where does this openness start to get a little leery in in your
2: mind I don't know that I agree with you that a practicing Muslim would read that description and be like, oh, yeah, that applies to me. <laughs> yeah, otherwise why, Otherwise, they wouldn't call themselves a Muslim. They'd call themselves a Christian. Um, yeah, but I have a ton
1: of Muslims who say to me, you and I worship the same God. I hold Jesus totally. in high regard. I'm tied yeah. to the tradition of Jesus in the way you've written it here, but they oh, would oh, add okay.
2: more to it. Interesting. Okay. So do you have Muslim friends that identify with aspects of the religious tradition and heritage? Like they they do they they do some things that are considered traditional Christian practices and traditions and rituals? I guess that surprises me, but they might be out there. Okay. Um yeah, as as I said in the, the section that you read, I do try to hold a pretty big tent for for the term Christian. I'm not I'm not gonna be, I'm not, I'm I'm nobody's gatekeeper. I was a gatekeeper
1: okay.
2: for long enough, and I um, those days are, are well behind me. Uh, so I'm not going to be a gatekeeper for anybody. If someone wants to identify as a Christian, uh, I might have some thoughts on that. Like, good lord, there are people there are people that uh, we, don't, we're not, we don't need to get political, but there are people that have identified as Christian for the last four years. And i would have some real questions about that like what the crap like that is <laughs> that is not christian as i understand it um but you know that's how they that's the term that they use um so yeah i my point is in, in writing that is i'm trying to describe what i mean by christian as opposed to create a definition that i expect others to uh adhere to so okay. th- that's really the point of that passage is i want i wanted the readers to know right up front when I say Christian, here's what I mean by that. I mean that someone sees in the person of Jesus a trustworthy and reliable way to abundant life. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. I totally I buy into that. And also, they make some effort or they try to engage in the heritage of Christianity. Like, they have some connection to this religion is really the point. Um, maybe they go to church, maybe they don't. Maybe they read their Bible, maybe they don't. But they have some connection to the, like there's an institution known as Christianity, me to identify as a Christian to say, look, in some way I'm connected to that.
0: Okay. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, this is really interesting. And I, I love what Sean did with this. When he, when asked about Islam, he did push back a little bit with Sean there and we could talk about that, but I want you to notice what is really going on here. When we he, when we talk about, um, Mormon is, uh, just just take Islam off the table for a minute. Let's just look at Mormonism. I agree with Sean about Islam, but let, let's just take that off the table and go with Mormonism. Mormons would absolutely fit that that description, right? They definitely would say, yeah, Jesus, is, you follow Jesus, that's that's the way to live uh, the fullest life. And and um, and and they certainly do things that, they certainly read their Bible and go to church. He just said, well, maybe they read the Bible, maybe they don't, maybe they go to church, maybe they don't. Mormons, they're definitely going to do that. So th- this is, this is, Really ambiguous. It's I understand the desire to be broad. I mean, hey, this is a I appreciate it in the sense that, as I said before, when it comes to doctrinal issues, secondary doctrinal issues, um, like whether I'm a Calvinist or not, or what my view of the end times is, that sort of thing. I think we should have a, a bigger tent. We shouldn't be consigning people to the flames because they disagree with us about a secondary doctrinal matter. But when it comes to uh, what it means to be a Christian, this is pretty darn important, right? It's pretty important because if you have a doctrinal position if you have a position on what it means to be a christian a definition for what it means to be christian that mormons can fit into this is dangerous this is very dangerous and needs to be challenged because not only is it out of step with historic christianity and with the bible i would say and maybe he would say i don't i don't i don't know uh, based on some things that he says later later on when we're talking about jesus being God incarnate, in the sense that we mean God as evangelicals, he says, "I get why you think that because I mean, look, early Christians and perhaps the New Testament speak that they they speak that way and they give you that idea." Okay, maybe he would have he would agree with me here, but but when you've got a, a, a Christianity that's so broad that it allows for Mormonism to be involved and possibly Islam, his response to that seems to be, well, you know, okay, I'm 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 nobody's gatekeeper. I'm nobody's gatekeeper." Now, interestingly, there's an interesting. <laughs> There's an interesting turning of the tables here when it comes to uh, this this issue and how it often plays out theologically and politically, right? He clearly is referencing Donald Trump and says there are certain people that over the past four years have been in power that I don't think that's Christianity. I, I don't see how that's Christian, but hey, they identify as Christian, Right according to his, what he understands Christianity to be, maybe at the end of that first part of it. I don't know if it was Sean editorializing or trying to summarize it, or if this is actually what it says in the book. I don't have the book. Uh, but, but it, So maybe he, maybe he clears this up. But when it says uh, Jesus is the way to you know, live life to the fullest or whatever, and then it says something like, and, and you're going to try to follow that. Well, I, I don't know. If, you, if, if the bar for being a Christian is you recognize that Jesus is the way to live the abundant life. That doesn't mean you're doing it. If it's just to recognize that, there are a lot of people that recognize that that don't do it. Um, obviously, as Sean elsewhere mentions, the demons have the right propositional truth claims about who Jesus is, but they, but they, but that doesn't mean they're doing it. That doesn't mean they're living that life to the fullest. Now, if it is to try and live that life to the fullest, maybe there's a way out of this. But think about there those two categories, those two things that it means to be a Christian. Uh, to to maybe read your Bible, maybe not, maybe go to church, maybe not, but in some way kind of connect with the Christian tradition. And then secondly, um, or, or firstly, to recognize Jesus as the way to abundant life. Depending on how you chalk all that up, Donald Trump might well be a Christian on, on, that, uh, cat, on, on that understanding. But there are a lot of evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump that will say, look, I don't want to say any particular person isn't a Christian because I don't know what's going on in their head. Uh, but... Uh, You know, there are some things here that Jesus tells us how to judge people and and um, that sort of thing that that they could say about certain people as an evangelical, that someone who uh, that progressive Christians, I think, are are pretty, pretty solid against. They could actually make a statement about the salvation of such a person. Um, But yet the progressive Christians can't, because if that's the what it means to be a Christian, well, then Donald Trump, as well as a lot of people who they don't like are 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 in. Now that's not me, obviously making a statement about Donald Trump's salvation. Uh, I find it really, I find it really difficult to to make those statements because I don't necessarily know all the information. But if I did, I could make such statements. And with them, not necessarily, because there are a lot of people that believe Jesus is the way um, and and haven't followed that way and uh, go to church and read the Bible, but don't. I, you know, haven't aren't living the Jesus life, right? So anyway, uh, I think these are all interesting. That's an interesting turning of the tables. And I think it's interesting to talk about. All right, let's move on to the theological issues. I want to be sensitive to time here. So we're going to move on to what he has to say about the nature of God, as Sean asks him.
1: Well, let's track with your position of God here, where you say uh, there's no progressive Christian way to think about God. Right. Now, you do seem confident that God is not a he, um, but my question is, you also use the term that God is like an insisting force, which sounds like a personal being in your mind. Is God a personal being or a force or something else that I'm missing?
2: I would say that was, that was the hardest chapter for me to write. And probably the one that, I would most like to redo only because Sean, and I was just talking about this with my wife the other night, like one of the, um, this might be a quick tangent, but it'll come back to the the topic at hand. One of the pieces of collateral damage that, that has happened for me over the last 10 years as sort of leaving my evangelical roots behind and moving towards something more progressive. One of the, one of the pieces of collateral damage in this is I've, I feel like I have lost a bit of the, the, personal aspect of god that i feel like I, I i have necessarily needed to allow some of those conceptions of god to die for instance god is not a white man in the cloud uh, um those those ideas those metaphors those conceptions necessarily needed to die for me because they were untrue they were incorrect they were contributing to harmful ideas um but i i I've, I've been aware over the last several years, more specifically, that sort of what was left behind, shout out to Tim LaHaye, what was left behind in that, uh, in the sort of the tearing apart of those conceptions was this amorphous, I don't know, capital S source, like trying to figure out how to talk about a divine creator without there being like a, a being in the sky somewhere. And language has just been entirely unhelpful for me in that. (laughs) It is like I don't, I don't know, y'all. I just—it's more like here's what I can describe. God isn't. I don't know. So when you say is God a personal being, the the idea of a being, I I do stumble on, um, as though if we could just have the right telescope, we could see God somewhere.
0: Okay, so first off, I don't want to spend too much time on this because, in the end, though I didn't include it here, he does come around and say. I think he comes around and says, "Yeah, God's. I mean, I, yeah, I think God's personal. I, I lost it for a while, but yeah, I, I think I think God's personal." Um, and actually, that shouldn't be hard for a Christian to answer, according to historic Christianity, because God is personal. God is tripersonal, um, one God, three persons, right? So this shouldn't be this shouldn't be hard. And the fact that you have to struggle over that. Um, it really illustrates the differences between how progressives think about these theological issues and how evangelicals do and historic Christianity does. Right. So I, I want to mention that. Secondly, he, he struggles with the idea of a being. Right. He says, I just want to clarify that in philosophy, being means um, the material or immaterial existence of a thing. Anything that exists is being. And even a being, a particular one, is a being. Now, um, it is true that many times when we talk about this casually, we talk about a per, we, we talk about a being. We're talking about a personal being or um, a personal agent who is a being. But but it's just this. Is, this comes up a lot, and it's a little bugaboo of mine. Uh, secondly, uh, let you know th- is God a He? He said Sean doesn't spend too much time on this, but the notion that uh, God is not a He. Well, that's tough because what Christianity does not hold, and we're going to come to this idea of a white man in the sky, Um, God does not have biology, right? God God is not a biological being, uh, a biological personal being. Personal, but not biologically personal. Uh, So so God doesn't have genitalia in that sense. Um, Jesus obviously does. Jesus was a man, but um, during his time on earth, Jesus is he in that sense too. But God is spirit, and so as a result, uh, he, he doesn't have uh, uh, genitalia, but the picture that God gives of us, uh, the picture that the Bible gives us of what God is like, how you should think about God is father. And obviously father encompasses more than a biological male. Right. So 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 to say that it's not he or she people always throw that in. I'm not saying he did it for this reason, but atheists often say she, when referring to God, just, just to, you know, uh, Michael Shermer does that in his debate with David Wood. And it's always a little silly to me because it's like, you, you do realize we don't think of God as a man in the sky to that point. Let's move on to this idea that he says, I had to break it apart. And I, I get rid of some of these old beliefs, like that God was this man in the sky with, with, uh, with a beard and all those kind of things. Hold on a second. Um, I don't know how old Colby is. I'm imagining he's my age, maybe a little bit younger. Maybe a little bit older, but not far off. He may be much younger than me, but he's not much older. And during my lifetime, the internet came about, and it came about when, in you know, when I was 13, 14 is when people started having computers in their homes. And certainly by the late '90s, early 2000s, you could you could look things up, right? Well, what would ha- what happens now? I mean, because I get that there are really fundamentalist churches where perhaps you would have pastors or leaders allow you to persist in some belief about God as though he's a man in the sky like that. Um, But all my upbringing, and and I grew up in a pretty darn conservative church, that was almost like a joke. Like We we, we would point it out, like he would, that, look, Jesus is not, despite what the painting in the background behind the baptistry there is, Jesus is not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white-skinned Guy, you know, that's not, he's not, and he's not coming back with the American flag wrapped around him and uh, a handgun in each hand, a second amendment man, you know. And God is not some old white guy in the sky with a beard. We, we made jokes about that because we knew that wasn't true, right? That that was really important. But what if you were to Google that? Well, if you Google that, I Google what does God look like? The first link that comes up under what does God look like is an article from God Questions. Um, which is a resource for uh, theological and, and information, and sometimes apologetics. What does God look like? The first thing it says is, "God is a spirit." John four twenty four, and so His appearance is not like anything we can describe. Well, Colby said that he was Southern Baptist. So not only is that the first thing that you would find, at least now, when you Google this, it may not have been the case then, but it, it couldn't have been too hard to figure out. Um, you could just go, to, if, if he's Southern Baptist, he says Baptist. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Let's go with the largest Baptist denomination in America, the Southern Baptist Convention. And let's. they have a statement of faith, which is the Baptist faith and message. What does the Baptist faith and message say on the article that relates to God? On God, it says, there is one and only one living and true God, he is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, and then it goes on to say some other things, and it gives you some links when it comes to God the Father. One of those is John four twenty four, and John four twenty four uh, recognizes God as spirit. So I, I just want all of that out there. It would not have been hard if one was really interested in, in taking a look at what, what God is like. It's not some guy in the clouds. I you know, maybe that's, um, I mean, he's describing his own experience, but sometimes there are things that show up in this discussion that are char- uh, supposed to characterize evangelical thinking on things, and I think they're caricatures. Not that there's no Jack evangelical somewhere who believes that, but that it's not what evangelical pastors largely believe. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the Bible is clear, the Southern Baptist Convention is clear, and the first link on the internet would tell you that. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that article existed for him to find it, but the article in the Baptist Faith and Message goes back to 2000. Uh, and maybe further back, I don't know what the previous Baptist Faith and Message said about that. So, um, I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on that. I just did want to throw out some some things about this idea of God as a man in the cloud somewhere or something like that. As atheists would put it, your sky daddy, right? We don't think he's in the sky. We don't think if he had a telescope. And maybe he's being hyperbolic when he's talking about those things. But if you're being hyperbolic, are you caricaturing rather than... Uh, giving the proper characterization of what evangelicals believe. All right, let's move on to Jesus. This is obviously very important for Christians. What do you think about Jesus? Here's what Sean asks.
1: How do you answer that question about who Jesus was?
2: I affirm Peter and his answer. You are the Christ. Uh, I affirm the early Christians who saw in Jesus.
0: Now, note that that Peter's answer was, you are the Christ, the son of God.
2: The the manifestation of the long awaited Messiah, like they had anticipated that there would one day be another anointed one like Moses, who would come and free them and liberate them at that time from their Roman oppressors. And there were those that saw in Jesus and his teachings, in his um, in his death and certainly in his resurrection, like, oh, it's not the kind of liberation we were expecting. It's not the kind of Messiah that we anticipated, uh, but this—he—he he is the one we were waiting for, and I totally affirm that. I—I I agree with that. I—I I affirm that. Um, late, you know, it was within a couple centuries after that that then I think the early church started trying to figure out how do we how do we how do we name all this? How do we talk about all this? How do we? Who really was Jesus? Who? who what does it really mean to be the Christ, the Messiah? And you know Bart Ehrman has some great uh, research onto sort of how Jesus became God, how Jesus became Christ, in terms of being like looking back at his life and saying, "Wow!" Like the author of Hebrews, when we look at Jesus, he was like the exact representation of God, which I totally affirm. BT Dubs, um, he's like the exact—he's the express image of God.
1: Okay, so if I'm if I'm tracking, are you saying that you affirm? Like the Nicene Creed, classic Christianity, which been has been affirmed across different orthodox Protestant Catholic, will differ over what it means that God is triune, differ over what it means the relationship between faith and works, but certain core beliefs have characterized Christianity since its inception. You're saying you embrace those core beliefs
0: Well, the question is. Does he say that? Would he say that? Well, first of all, it might be helpful to take a look at what the Nicene Creed. So he's asking him, do you affirm something like the Nicene Creed? What does the Nicene Creed say? I'm going to read it to you. It's not long, and it's important. Uh, Here's what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the father through him all things were made for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven he became incarnate by the holy spirit and the virgin mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic, just means universal. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. So pretty straightforward, mere Christianity, as far as I can tell. Uh, what does he actually say to that? Because the Sean says, so are you you're saying you affirm something like that, that I see in Creed? Let's hear what he has to say.
2: I think I'd have to know a little more specifically what you're asking, what core okay. beliefs. Not, okay. not that it matters all that much. I'm okay, just a couple of dudes on a YouTube channel, so nobody's going to hold me well, to this, but I, I, it is okay. more like, yeah, I think I would have to be a little more in order for me to answer with integrity because i don't want to just okay. placate you or other people by saying yeah sign up on uh, the nicene i don't to- know if i do to- yeah.
1: totally fair so like do you believe you, you say there's one quote i came it said jesus was human full stop yeah. do you believe he was god in human flesh so you affirm his humanity would you equally affirm his divinity because that's something you don't talk about in the book
0: Now, I I, want to say something about this because I mentioned at the top of the show that what I liked about him is I didn't think he was trying to dodge questions. Now, the reason I think so might not be something that progressives appreciate, but I I don't think he was trying to dodge Sean's questions. I think he was trying to be transparent and honest. Um, I think that's why we see when it comes to, um, he says, Sean's like, it looks like it all boils down to this LGBT thing. That seems to be the dividing line. And he says, I mean, I think you've assessed that properly, right? So I, I think he's not trying to dodge. I think that what he's trying to do is to objectively clarify um, something that seems that, that that progressives prefer to look at as artistic, um, as as not not so clear cut, and that he says language has difficult time capturing. Now, with respect to Jesus and his divinity, which is of the utmost importance if you claim to be a Christian, right? If you don't believe Jesus is God, then that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity if you don't think Jesus is divine. I think that what well, this is the one question in in the series that I think uh, of questions that I think he is dodgy on. I could be wrong. I don't ever like to speak to motivations, but it just seems to me like Sean tries two or three different ways to um, attack this thing and not attack him, but attack this this subject. and and it I never got the clarity that I wanted. But we got enough clarity, I think, to know that that what is being presented here, again, no offense to Colby. I like Colby that this is dangerous stuff we're talking about. So let's take a look at how he answers this question.
2: When when you ask me that question, was Jesus fully God? I say yes, knowing that what I mean by God is probably different than what you mean by God. So therefore, if what you mean by God, are you asking, do I think Jesus was that? I would probably say no. <laughs> okay. Uh,
0: okay, folks, I want you to recognize he has a fair handle, I know, I, I surely, from growing up in a Baptist church. He, he has a fair handle on what evangelicals think about God. He, it's not like he's not in the ballpark at all. I mean, he may start explaining it and we might say, I, I don't know about that or that's a little off. But if he tried to explain what evangelicals think about God, I know he's in the ballpark. And he's saying what evangelicals think about God, is Jesus that in the flesh? No. That's a clear no. All right, let's hear what he has to say next. I mean, that is... Folks, that is it. That is, you're not talking about Christianity. I I don't see how that's in any way orthodox historic Christianity. But let's let him say more.
1: So what I mean by God is the eternal, self-existent, all good creator of the universe stepped into human race in the incarnation and was fully human and fully divine. That's the quick summation what I yeah. believe. Is that I something think, you're leery to affirm? Or you're like, yep, I'm on board with that. Well, or no, I don't.
2: I think the affirmation that was spoken over Jesus at his baptism, behold, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I think that's an affirmation that can and is spoken over all of us. I think that all of us are, and I said this earlier, all of us are, are children of God and that's, that's okay. biblical. I don't, you know, it's not just me pulling it out of my butt. Sure. Um, I believe that we are all beloved children of God, and so, yes, I believe that God was entirely and fully manifest in Jesus of Nazareth, hundred percent. And Sean, I believe God is fully evident and manifest and indwelling in you, and in me, okay. and in Nekic one hundred and three, and PudgeNet, and Redeemed five two five nine seven.
0: Okay. Sorry about that. So, so when we look at this, um, this is, this is very interesting because I, I think honestly, um, he makes a lot of points about the fact that when it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to Jesus divinity, the the next thing that happens after this is Sean pushes for more clarification. And what he says is, I I think that the reason you hold that Sean is because of the new Testament authors. And maybe he says early Christian stuff and all that, but, but this is what he says is those people were, were wrestling with trying to explain what they encountered that they encountered Jesus. It was amazing because he is, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus that's what God looks like. So they're trying to figure out what that is. And the best way they could do it was to say is God. And he said, if I was there, maybe I would have done the same thing. That I mean, I don't know how you more clearly get the notion that, um, that, that, that this is—he's he. He's not saying what orthodox historic Christianity has said about this. Uh, but even internal to the Gospels, uh, by what Jesus says of himself, uh, there there is good reason to believe that he thought of himself. Um, in this way, he certainly thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent to bring about the kingdom. According to Michael Icona, I asked him about this. He says that this is something that is universally agreed upon by scholars. You'll always have a couple of you know random individuals at the fringes, but but it seems to be a, a bedrock fact. Um, you know this, for example, think of Jesus' designation of himself uh, as this as the, with the honorific title. Son of Man. That was his favorite and it is used 80 times in the Gospels and only once outside of the Gospels. The importance of that is it doesn't seem like it's something that uh, later Christians, or, you know, even Christians that came not much later, you know, putting together the New Testament. It's not like something they put on his lips because they don't use it for him later, except one time in the New Testament. Um, James D.G. D. Dunn says, when we encounter a thoroughly consistent and distinctive feature, a tradition which depicts Jesus regularly using the phrase son of man and virtually no other use of the phrase, it simply beggars scholarship to deny that this feature stemmed from a remembered speech usage of Jesus himself. Um, so, you know, at the very least, he thought of himself as God's eschatological agent based on what's internal to the text. But the idea that Jesus what that we should not think of Jesus as divine. That's not Christian. That's just not Christian. And I'm sorry for putting it so bluntly, but it's important enough to put bluntly. And it's not because I don't like, again, Colby. It's just, I'm putting it. In fact, frankly, um, others have said this. I, you know, I, I I haven't studied this to know this for sure. Okay. But others who have will say things like that. Progressive Christianity is actually parasitic on evangelical Christianity. I know that sounds harsh, but what, it, it becomes a place for people who were hurt in the church. And in some cases, they were right to feel hurt. You know, people that were hurt in the church and and, and uh, left and they went to progressive Christianity. Uh, but it's but it's 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 um, or they just they couldn't stand the teaching of the church. And so they they ended up going to the progressive church. And so in that sense, the progressive church is parasitic on evangelical Christianity. Um, and and to, and it is and others have said it is not largely the case that most progressive Christians come from atheists who are getting saved or agnostics who are getting saved or coming uh, coming into the fold right kind of however you want to frame that um, I don't know for sure if that's true I've certainly heard people say that but I can say this much that kind of speaks to that end of things which is the atheists that I interact with they look at what we say we believe what the Bible says what we hold to as evangelical Christians. And they say, I don't buy that. But when they look at something like progressive Christianity, many of them say, okay, I'm glad for your political views because they line up with mine more, but that's not what Christianity teaches. That's not Christianity. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so why would I bother? Right? In other words, atheists look at that and they're like, I don't buy that, man. If you're saying Jesus isn't God, but we can still be Christians. I, he didn't say Jesus isn't God, but he says Jesus isn't God as evangelicals understand God. Okay, if you're saying that's, that's not, th- then what's the point? And, and so I think that's an important thing to to speak to. And um, I'd like to know what he thinks or how he assesses the question of whether progressive Christianity is parasitic on evangelical Christianity. I, I don't know how he would respond to that. He may have a beautiful answer. I may be wrong statistically on that. And so I'm not stating it. I'm just saying this is what is often said. And I think to, to that end, one thing that, that I think makes sense with that claim is that atheists look at it and they're like, nah, man, come on. If, if you're not, if, if the resurrection wasn't necessarily bodily, if Jesus wasn't um, divine, then what are, we, what are we really doing here? And to that end, let's go on to the resurrection, which is the next thing that comes up. Uh, let's talk about the resurrection.
1: Would you affirm the historical resurrection that Jesus walked? He was dead physically rose on the third day as the first fruits with a resurrected body. Do you affirm that as a historical fact? Because the way you talk about it in your book is more like a metaphor, not a real historical fact.
2: Yeah. I think if you were to go back, uh, and if anybody wants to here, by the way, you can go to sojourngrace.com. That's our church's website. And if you were to go back and listen to the last seven years of sermons on Easter Sunday, you'd probably get a bit of a sine wave on how Colby feels about this idea <laughs> so there'll be some easter sermons where it's like yes literal bodily resurrection empty tomb 100 then the next year be like well i don't know y'all and then it just kind of goes like this so sean i guess it just i i i, I don't know i don't know okay. some days it totally does not make sense to me like come on body coming back from the dead and then other days it's like well this existence that we have right now is pretty strange like I can't explain this either some things are pretty weird in life so yeah maybe the tomb really was empty and this guy did come did come back from the dead
1: so look this is helpful all I'm asking for is clarity because we want to know some of the differences between progressive Christianity and evangelical Christianity so you're given what you think is your best answer and that's fair that's all, that's all I'm asking for and yeah. people are weighing within, in with their <laughs> within their progressive
2: thoughts. Christianity you're going to have all sorts of different takes on that you're going to have your empty tumors which are literal resurrection you're going to have yep. now is a, is it was a metaphor that was like Marcus Borg. It was just, they experienced the resurrection in their heart. Uh, all of that is within this large movement of progressive Christianity. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Sorry again. I'm always getting back having late getting back to the video, but um, okay. So uh, he mentions Marcus Borg who is uh Interesting source. Um, here's what Marcus Borg says about the resurrection and whether it was physical. These texts are not about Jesus being restored to his previous life as a physical being. If such events happen, they are resuscitations. Resuscitation persons resume the finite physical existence they had before and will die again someday. Whatever affirming the resurrection of Jesus means, it does not mean this. Okay, th- to say that the resurrection was physical bodily resurrection does, is not synonymous with saying that it was a mere resuscitation. Historic Christianity doesn't hold that it was a resuscitation. And uh, today we don't talk about it as, and the scripture doesn't describe it as resuscitation. I agree. Uh, resuscitation happens all across the world every single day with people that were almost dead or even maybe clinically dead, but not actually dead, who are then resuscitated. Okay, that's fine. We all, we grant that resurrection is, is something different than resuscitation. This mortal puts on immortality, and so what Jesus had when, when he rose again was not just the same body that he had before. It was, I mean, the, the nail-scarred hands were there, the, those things were there, but it was more than that. It, it was it was uh, qualitatively different, though his physical body was still there. Th- this, is, this is Christianity. This is dangerous, this idea that Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead. This is not Christianity. This is not historic Christianity. This this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. The resurrection of Jesus is the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith, and it is so important. Uh, Often we're asked as Christians, what is your principle of falsification? In other words, what could be done that would show that Christianity is false that you would accept? Because a good hypothesis is, is falsifiable in principle. Not that it will definitely be shown to be false, but here's how you would show it was false, and we have that produce the body of Jesus produce manuscripts from some disciples saying he didn't really bodily rise these other guys are making stuff up something along those lines um, it's not my fault that you're that someone's not able to do that but that is our principle of falsification and what we're hearing here is, yeah, you know. Sometimes I think it's bodily. Sometimes it's not. I, yeah. Sometimes it's. Uh, some people believe it. Some don't. Some go with Marcus Borg. This is a serious, serious problem. Why is it important? Because it is dangerous. I love the idea that we should be in the search for truth, and and that we can, uh, we you know, on certain things we can say, well, I really don't know, and and all those things. Okay, I get all that. But on issues like this, we're talking about the historical centerpiece of Christianity. Um, if you don't affirm this, you're not affirming Christianity. Sorry, um, you know that, that the resurrection is pretty important. All right, let's move on to the nature of Scripture. I'm trying to wrap this up.
1: Okay, uh, let's talk about your your uh, your views on the Scripture because this is really at the heart of a lot of it. And you say that the Bible is inspired. Now that's us using the same words, but I think we mean something very different about this. If I read your book correctly. When you say the Bible's inspired, what do you mean by that?
2: Um, You know, now I I recognize that the inerrancy of scripture is an untenable position to hold and the infallibility of scripture really just doesn't make any sense. Um, But inspiration for me, it's less now about a God who sort of uh, uses humans, you might imagine, uses humans to be the exact pen to paper so God's like, I really want to write a book, but I don't have any hands. I need humans. I'm going to like enter into this human and use their body as the a meat puppet to write. So it's less about that, which is to say that every single word on the page is exactly how God would have written it had God had the uh, fortune of having a pen and paper and, and a physical hand. The Bible is an inspired work of art. It's an inspired collection of stories. It's an inspired collection of letters and poems, 100%. So what I mean by that, I guess, is I believe that it is still, it is a reasonable position to take that humans can be animated, for lack of a better word, animated by God. Humans can be sort of caught up into what is most true, what is most real, what is most good, what is most beautiful. And there have been times throughout human history when in that place or in that state, whatever it is, if someone's writing something and it reflects what is most true, most real about the universe, it's like, well, it makes sense to talk about that as being inspired by God, that that is reflective of who God is. But yes, I do think the Bible is inspired. No, I don't think it's inerrant or infallible.
1: I, I want to make sure I understand what you I mean by inspired. Cause I would say Jordan was inspired. Of course, I would say LeBron is an inspired basketball player. Uh, Michelangelo, Bach, but that's humans reaching their potential in a beautiful way. That's different than God coming down and being the source of something, which is more of the historic Christian view. Is that what you differ with? Did I characterize your view of when you say it's inspired fairly?
2: When you describe, when you describe back to me sort of this low level inspiration, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm conscious of how like there's that sort of low level of inspiration. And then, the meat puppet idea is this sort of the the plenary inspiration, this high level of God, like taking over humans to write it. And I just, it's somewhere in the middle there. And I I don't have a better way to describe it other than to say, yeah, I think God inspired the Bible and the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. So that clearly can't mean this super high level of inspiration. I said earlier that Jesus is the, right quoted Hebrews, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Anytime in the Old Testament where something is attributed to God, but it doesn't at all resemble Jesus, I'm like, whew, let's focus in on that because something is going on here. Um, this is not who God is. Uh, so what else might be going on here? Because that's who God is. That's Jesus. We can feel good about that.
0: Okay. So I'm going to let this play on. I know this is a long clip. I know that, but it's so important because as you just heard, we're hearing kind of a hermeneutic there about how they look at the text, how he does anyway. And then we're going to hear a couple other things that I think are super important for how this plays out for doctrinal issues like the nature of hell. So I'm going to let it play on just for a few, just for two minutes. But I think this is important. If you want to skip this, you can, but I think it's worth hearing. So let's continue
2: this kill every man, woman, and child? Hmm, there's something else going on here. I think I think we have to disagree there, Sean, only insofar as to say, like, the Old Testament itself is sort of a conversation between different traditions, the priestly tradition and the prophetic tradition. So there isn't even a unified voice in the Old Testament, which is the, the Jewish Bible. There isn't even a unified voice there about the character of God. Um, which is part of why you get to uh, uh, situations like, um, is it Micah? Um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what the heck? We just have this entire books of the Bible all about sacrifice and this whole system. And now this prophet's saying, no, 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 no. It's about mercy. And then Jesus affirmed that, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So I don't, I actually reject your position that there is this unified view of who God is in the Old Testament and that I'm an aberration of that in my um, in my position.
1: If so, if Jesus embraces hell, I don't like it. Do I feel obligated to follow and believe that whether I like it or not?
2: Jesus didn't, aff- for, well, at least when you say the word hell, I really have to ask, like, what do you mean by hell? Because if, if by hell you mean like Dante's Inferno, you mean that afterlife, on earth a soul might experience eternal torment, maybe even eternal conscious torment, which is like the the most unjust, unloving thing anybody could imagine. That conception of hell, Jesus had nothing to do with. Like the only times that Jesus referenced what we might call hell, he was referencing Hades. He was referencing the, the, uh, like a, a, a sort of literal physical place on earth that became this metaphorical representation for judgment nothing to do with life after death. Jesus good great. Jesus didn't really care about life after death. He cared about life before death. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of disagree with the, with the question. If Jesus were to affirm something akin to the evangelical doctrine of hell, then that would be, that'd be really curious. That'd be like, oh, well, I guess I do need to maybe reconsider that. But, you know, when I did my deep dive into hell when I was in seminary, it was like, Jeez. Look at Jesus when he talks about hell. He does not talk about hell the way that evangelicals talk about hell. Full stop.
1: Okay, that's, that's obviously an area we're going to differ on, <laughs> which would take us aside.
0: Yeah, so, okay, um, uh, uh, there's several things here to tackle because Scripture is pretty important, right? Um, he would say that it's important too, but, uh, but but let's talk about this for a minute. So he says Jesus does not talk about hell the way that, uh, Christ- that, that evangelicals talk about hell. All right, so... Uh, First of all, he, he there's there's something—well, let's start with this. I wonder what his response, since he says Jesus didn't talk about hell the way evangelicals do, I w- wonder what the response of his congregation would be if Jesus—and they didn't know it was Jesus— and he walked in, and he said what he says in Mark 9, 43. And I'm going to replace hell with the word Gehenna. He says that when Jesus is talking about hell, he's he's using the word Hades— um, when he's referring to this actual physical place where people are going to die. I think he's thinking of Gehenna, the, the valley of Hinnom outside the south gate of Jerusalem. But, but let's, and he uses Gehenna, Jesus uses Gehenna three times in this passage. So I'm just going to say Gehenna instead of hell, but know that when I say Gehenna, that's the one that, that's, you're used to hearing that as hell. Um, what if Jesus said this in his progressive church, I wonder? Uh, Mark nine forty three. and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off for it is better for you to enter life maimed than having your two hands to go into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. For everyone will be salted with fire. All right, now, now, I just want you to just imagine that we're in a progressive church and Jesus shows up, they don't know it's Jesus, and he says that. I think that what many of them would say is that sounds like one of these evangelicals. But In fact, that sounds more extreme than what a lot of evangelicals will say. Because a lot of evangelicals understand judgment language and fire and that Jesus is is speaking like a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's speaking like the Old Testament prophets in this way. And fire is an image for judgment and all these kind of things. They're aware of that. But, but does he speak like evangelicals on this? I think it, more extreme than most evangelicals in, in that regard. Uh, but Jesus speaks of Gehenna. He speaks of hell. So there are four words translated hell um, in the New Testament or in the Bible. There is sheol, which is kind of like the, you know, the word for grave. And then there's the New Testament kind of counterpart to that, Hades. Um, and then there is Tartarus. And then there is uh, Gehenna. Jesus, if you collapse all of the... Um, parallel passages between the Gospels down, it seems like four times Jesus talks about Gehenna. It um, talks about Gehenna hell. Jesus talked about Hades in Luke chapter 16. That, that's what the rich man Lazarus, that's what he's talking about there, which certainly seems like some kind of a, um, um, intermediate state between when you die and the judgment. But in any sense, whatever we want to say about Luke 16 uh, I think he's talking about Gehenna. J- Jesus talks about Gehenna when he talks about how will you, uh, h- how will you, scribe, how will the scribes and Pharisees, um, how will you avoid the fire of Gehenna or, or, or survive the fire of Gehenna? In Luke 12, 4, where he says, uh, be not afraid of him that can kill the body, and after that has no more that he can do. Fear him who can uh, cast both, it could destroy both your body and soul in Gehenna. Okay. Um, he, he says um, in the passage we just read, it's better to dismember yourself and to go to Gehenna. Obviously, I think that's hyperbolic. It's meant to show the importance of this. And so don't literally cut things off of your body. But the point is, that's how serious it is. Um, and then uh, if you call your brother Raqqa or fool, then, then it, you're, you're in danger of Gehenna. Okay, so Jesus talks about it on these four occasions, as far as we can tell. Um, and he says Jesus isn't talking about afterlife stuff. That's not really what he's talking about. Well, um, whether you're a person who affirms conditional immortality, annihilation, or eternal conscious torment, or whatever, it sure seems like, at least with Luke, Luke chapter 12, verse 4, and it's parallel in Matthew, that what we're talking about here is, okay, so he's saying the Valley of Hinnom, the Gehenna that Jesus is referring to. Jesus is just talking about a physical place where people are going to physically die. Uh, okay, yeah, I, that's that's actually interesting. I've considered that position. The problem with that is, While many did die in the Valley of Hinnom, and and historically the Valley of Hinnom was a place where the apostate Jews did Moloch worship and all those kind of things. The the truth about it is its it means something important to say. So Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of the one who can just kill your body, which is what happened in like literal physical Gehenna on earth. Don't be afraid of someone who can kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both your body and soul in Gehenna. So it sure seems like Jesus is speaking to something that happens after judgment. Whether you think that what happens is we're raised and then you just die after judgment if you're uh, not a believer, or if you just, or if you think there's some sort of a eternal conscious torment or wh- whatever you think about that, it sure seems something like something more in context than just you're going to die in that valley over there. Uh, because he, he makes a point that people die that way. Don't be afraid of those people. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both your body and soul. So anyway, I, I think that's important uh, to mention there. I think that that's a, that's a big problem. Also, he's, he's like, I don't, I don't really know how to put it. Uh, you know, he talks about inspiration on the one hand being like, um, is it like, you know, someone who's caught up in the moment, like, like LeBron James playing a basketball we could say is inspired or like in the Pixar movie souls that came out last year that, that uh, when you really get worked up and you're, you're in the zone with whatever you're doing, painting, music, whatever uh, you, you're, you know, it's kind of like you're inspired. He says, okay, I, I get what you're saying, Sean, that's like a low level. Then there's this other idea that, that, uh, Christian thinkers do not hold. Now, I'm not saying there's not a Jack Christian somewhere in the pew that holds this, but that Jesus possesses you like demon possession and uses you as a meat puppet to write down exactly what he said once said. No, that's, he, said, he calls that the high end and, and this other thing is the low end of inspiration, which I, I think there are some categorical problems there, but he says, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in the middle, too. Historic Christianity thinks it's somewhere in the middle. Um, But that it's somewhere in the middle doesn't mean we don't believe that what is written is what God wanted written, even though he used the personalities of the individual authors to write what he wants written. So it's a bit more serious than I think uh, we get there. How do we actually capture this with language? The way I capture it, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but I know a way. And it's in 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Scripture is theonustos, God-breathed. That's how I say it. That's how Scripture says it. So I think all that's definitely an important piece of this that I think needs to be referenced. So we've come now to the end of this. We've come down to the end. We've gone really long with this. I'm sorry about that. It's, we're about an hour and a half in, but I want to I want to go back over what we've said. And again, there's there's nothing in this personal um, to to uh, Colby. We're not attacking Colby. We're attacking what we think are dangerous ideas, and um, and and uh, some of the greatest atrocities in the history of the world happened because people were afraid to challenge ideas that are dangerous. So we had four introductory categories and four theological categories that were discussed in the introductory categories. We talked about, is it emotion or theology that fuels this? And, um, we want to say about that. it something may seem emotionally appealing and because it would be an escape from what seems terrifying and, uh, and, and, uh, Uh, traumatic to you, but there are some things that are terrifying and traumatic that are true. Uh, Just like we would a, a person who's got cancer because of cigarette smoking, he needs to know the truth, even if the truth is terrifying and traumatic. So what's true is really what matters most. Uh, with questions versus questioning, um, we should be okay with this is where we can have some agreement. We should be okay with people questioning and and asking questions when it comes to anything. Um, but with secondary doctrinal issues, someone lands on a different position, that's fine. We can talk about that in-house debates and discussions, and that's fine. But when someone lands on something different when it comes to the fundamentals of the Christian faith, don't be surprised if we're not okay with that. Um, uh, when it comes to Jesus' divinity or the resurrection in the sense that you would not be okay with someone persisting in um, a dangerous habit like smoking cigarettes. Um, You're not okay with that because you you know the truth and the truth means that this is very dangerous. Obviously, we can't control someone's beliefs directly and so that's not even what we're trying to do. But we're not okay with it in that sense because we think this is dangerous and it's real. And because it's real, just as real as medical issues, it's as dangerous as medical issues and should be taken with that level of seriousness. Um, is evangelicalism is more concerned, he says, with uh, believing, having the right data between your ears um, than, than, than living the right way. And of course, as we pointed out, if you're going to love people the way you should, if you're going to love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself, the way you're going to have to do that is going to be dependent on what you know. And we talked there about vaccines. You, you, uh, oh, I said the word. But, but uh, you, when, when we're talking about that, you have to have certain propositional truth claims that are correct if you're going to be a good global neighbor in that sense. And, well, this is definitely true when it comes to Christianity. Um, d- when it comes to defining progressive Christianity, the dividing line seems to be LGBT stuff, and that's very interesting. And his de- definition of what a Christian is is far too broad because Mormons would fit that definition, and so that definitely becomes problematic. The theological issues, the nature of God, progressives are all over the map. He says Man, many believing God is not personal. Um, uh, historic Christianity teaches that God is not only personal; he's tri-personal, and so this is very serious. He comes back around to saying he thinks God is personal, but the the ambiguity that exists among many progressives. Um, uh, sort of illustrates the difference between how evangelicals and progressives think about these things. When it comes to the nature of Christ, which is also of the utmost importance, Jesus is God's beloved Son, but so are you, Sean, and so are the people in the chat. This is not Christianity. Full stop. This is not Christianity. I know that's going to seem uncharitable. I know that's going to seem uh, terrifying and traumatic. I'm sorry. I have to be bold on this because I love people. I want them to know the truth. This is not the way. This is so important that you understand that uh, the divinity of Jesus. What about the nature of the resurrection? Um, may or may not be bodily, he says, in, uh, in, in which case Jesus' body is still in the grave. If, if that's the case, that it's not bodily, think about what that means. Uh, Christianity, uh, the resurrection is the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith. Christianity stands or falls on the bodily resurrection. And to quote Al Mohler, Referencing John Shelby Spong, he says, if the choice is between the the choices between John Shelby Spong and the Apostle Paul, a choice this clear is truly a gift. And I concur. Um, and then the last thing, the nature of Scripture, as I said before, oddly, he emphasizes Jesus to the exclusion of. Of the scripture that Jesus endorses, um, one thing I didn't get to get to here that I wish I had, and I forgot about it, but we've got to come to an end. Is um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how they they take what G, what they think Jesus would like, and go back and interpret the Old Testament based on that. And They think maybe we're just wrongly interpreting scripture. I have a, a video on God and and uh, genocide and and all those things in the Old Testament that. Um, that that are unappealing to the senses. And I would encourage you to go check that out to understand what's really going on there. I think ultimately, if you understand that God, in the case of the genocide, which he references, God gave these Canaanites uh, 400 years to come around to the truth and uh, t- to repent, and they didn't do that. At this point, when there's literal child child sacrifice to Molech going on, causing your children to pass through the fires and all kinds of other things, the question is, rather than why did God command this, why didn't God command this before? God loves them and is merciful. That's why he gave them so long. On the other hand, God is a just God, and it, it, imagine that we captured Um, Osama bin Laden. And all we did, because we wanted to seem loving, was just to hug him and give him a pat on the back and say, now, now, don't do that again, or hit off Hitler or whatever tyrant. This would not be good. Why would this not be good? Because justice is good. So there needs to be a harsher punishment for that, right? And in the same way, uh, God is just. If God God is not just, God is not as good. And so uh, judgment and Uh, uh, both judgment and love, justice and love are important ways to think about God that I think makes sense of much of what's in the Old Testament. There's obviously a lot more we could talk about. But in the end, I want you to know that I I, I talk about this so frankly because it's so important that we get Christianity right. I don't think that uh, Colby intends any harm, but I think that these are dangerous ideas. I'm glad for the interview. I'm glad for his frankness because I think it illustrates to other Christians um, exactly what progressive Christians the sorts of things they might hold. Again, he doesn't speak for all progressive Christians, but it illustrates that really well. I hope this has been a blessing to you. It's been a labor of love, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.